You're listening to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. This week, host Sally Warhaft is taking a look back at Donald Trump's first 100 days as US President. Her guest for this episode is Australian writer Don Watson. He is, of course, an author, essayist and speechwriter. He's written so many books now, but some of my favourites are The Bush, uh, Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, of course, uh, death Sentence and Weasel Words. Uh, but his writing on America uh, is particularly wonderful as well. And uh, this book, American Journeys, of course, um, and now a couple of uh, lengthy essays, quarterly essays, uh, and also uh, magazine articles. And welcome, Don. Welcome, Don Watson. Thank you. My uh, desire to more deeply understand American politics and with Don assisting goes back a long way. Uh, In 2008, uh, when I was the editor of a certain once great little magazine, uh, Don was in Ohio in the lead up to that election and wrote a superb uh, essay on uh, Obama and what was going on very close to the election at that time. And the cover we did, I think this is probably my favourite edition of of all that I did, but uh, it's got Barack and Michelle Obama with the Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, And I just wonder, Don, how you feel about that now? Um... Well, it's gone so quickly, which makes it feel like the transition from Obama to Trump sort of happened in the space of about six months. Um, I, don't, I think, you know, in fairness, perhaps to those uh, conversations you had leading up to the election and immediately afterwards, I don't think it, we will know for a while what really happened in 2016. Um, I, I think it's, we're still puzzling it out. And um, and we're so taken up with looking at what's happening from day to day that we um, that we I, I think we're doing that before we realise you know before we worked out what it was that caused Trump to be elected. I mean there are a hundred reasons, and you can decide you know on one day you'll say it was Hillary's fault, and another day you'll say it was Bernie Sanders, and another day you'll say it's just the way the United States is. But then you'll come across articles that. Uh, such as the one that Jane Meyer wrote in The New Yorker about three weeks ago, which paints an absolutely terrifying picture of the influence of a reclusive billionaire called Robert Mercer and his family, um, which who made his billions out of the financial industry because he was a computer whiz and a mathematical genius, and he developed the algorithms by which most financial transactions at the top end and now conducted. And through um, various connections, including one with Steve Bannon, he applied something similar to the population of the United States and discovered some time ago, three or four years ago, that a large part of that population was ready for a Trump, ready for a revolutionary right-wing force. They wanted a strong man. and they wanted a um, they wanted to sweep away Washington, and it was an appeal to. Now you can say, well, you know, this is frightening on the one hand, but you can also say, well, America's loathing for remote power goes back to the Boston Tea Party. It goes back to the birth of the nation, and this is the thing that got me when I went to America last year. Watch me, I'm going to start meandering now. No, we, um, we want you to meander. But, I mean, I thought that was what was so telling about. Uh, going to America after seven or eight years, you know, from between that article and um, the quarterly essay last year, was that the divisions was were the same as the time of Obama, but they had actually widened and hardened, and they'd been manipulated in ways that were having political results, like. Wisconsin had become an arch-conservative state 
the old progressive Wisconsin had become the Wisconsin of the Koch brothers and, and Governor Walker. And through redistricting and various other means, he'd got a stranglehold, including an absolutely rabid right-wing radio station that backed him. And he'd, he'd knocked over workers' rights of all kinds, unions, public service unions. So Wisconsin had become this different place. And it had grown more evangelical and much less progressive. And so you think, well, this is new, and yet the threads go all the way back to um, the very beginnings of the United States. So what it seems to me, you know, you can, as far as the, what Trump and, and, and really through Steve Bannon and a man called Pat Cadell and a few others did, I think, was to find the threads in American history which were hostile to government of all kinds. And again, you think, oh, well, that's new. No, it's not, because it's exactly what Ronald Reagan got elected on in 1980. Remember, well, I'll get the government off your backs. Incredibly powerful. And you think, oh, what a smart line. But even that has its deep threads all the way back to the Virginia planters, or if you like, back to Reichian analysis, you know, the late 19, which sort of took over the hippie movement and turned, into, turned it into Est, which turned it into a sort of corporate notion and advertising agencies and marketeers all took it on. So Trump is, uh, Trump is everything new under the sun and the same old thing. In fact, in a way, when you look at what Trump is, you know, he's a, he's a, a, a sort of a P.T. Barnum. He's a, he's a, um, he's a scam merchant. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a punter. He's a celebrity. Um, he's, he's got mafia connections going way back. He's a, he's a bullshit artist. Full blown. A um, vulgarian, you call him. An incredible yeah. vulgarian. He, he's all those things. And you think... Well, that's a thread in America that goes back forever too. I mean, so what took him so long mm. to come up with one like him? Mm. You know. So I, I do think that we'll we'll be still trying to work out how Trump got there, and more evidence will come to light. I mean, what you what you get out of the Jane Meyer piece is you discover that when Trump was making those outrageous things, which everyone said, "Oh, that's lusted for him," as the debates went on, the, the Republican debates. The primaries. Well, he can't lie. He can't survive that. He knew all along what was working and what wasn't working. Even if he was a little out of control, they didn't worry about that. I mean, Bannon picked him out. They were looking for someone. They thought Ted Cruz, and then but everybody hated Ted Cruz apart from the you know the handful who loved him. His own senators hated him. Um, so they went, and then they, Bannon says, "I saw Trump talking to." Mobs. Trump was thinking about being president back in 2011 and he thought of running against Obama and then changed his mind. But Bannon said he liked Trump because he was instinctive and he electrified audiences. He just did. And of course, you know, we got it all filtered through the East Coast press, which said, well, you know, he doesn't speak in whole sentences. Um, he says rude and terrible things about John McCain or he, he does... Uh, you know, he's a misogynist. He's all these things. And we thought, oh, well, it won't go anywhere. But they were so unbelievably wrong. And it was even possible for me to see that, that they were wrong. And they were incredibly complacent, really smart people I talked to in New York in, in June, just after Hillary had got the... finally fought off Bernie Sanders. Trump had got the Republican nomination. Saying, oh, no, Hillary's a shoe-in. Um... Trump can't possibly win. And you so, say, but that, it doesn't feel that way when you go out, you know, once you get 50 miles in a westerly direction, it doesn't feel that way at all. Well, in fact, in your more recent essay, you uh, completely, uh, the possibility that he, he would win is, uh, you, you know, you say that. It, reading these two essays eight years apart was really fascinating for the similarities um, and the, the, the two things that just kept coming up for me, were the American obsessions with fear and freedom. Hmm. And uh, did he tap into the, the freedom? Was he just 
better able to do that where Hillary Clinton seemed to have a, a bigger relationship with fear? I think that's a, a, a fair way of putting it. But when you think about it, I mean, if you just if you take the slogans, you know, Hillary sounded a bit like, you know, those dreadful ALP slogans we've ever had, you know, we've had for the last God knows how long. It's not quite as bad as um, moving forward or whatever it was called, <laughs> going forward. But but stronger together when the country, I mean, it's just army. I mean, that's not going to appeal to anybody who's already made up their mind that they don't like Hillary. Um, whereas, you know, making America great again has this... Um, this great resonance, for particularly for people who, rightly or wrongly, believe things were much better a generation or two generations ago. I mean, and, and, and it's a kind of myth. But then certain powerful political movements have been built on myth, um, and no one seemed to notice. But really what Trump was doing... I mean, in this thing, I said, you know, I, said, well, you know I, I do mention the word fascist, and I knew Jared Henderson would um, object... And that was one of the motives, really. I thought, well, you know, you're not... Hello, Jared. You're not leading a virtuous life if Jared's not after you. And, and I thought, well, if... But I did think, well, I mean, will it, is it a kind of distraction from the argument to call him a fascist? But if you looked at, at a whole lot of criterion, criteria, academic criteria, like, like George Mosse's many, many books on fascism, you find that a lot of what Trump was doing fitted a fascist mould, um, including that sort of mythic stuff um, and many other things which I don't need to go into. And there's no, no, there was no point in not calling him one, but so long as you understood that it's not going to be like Italy. There's not going to be marching in the well, streets you, and all the rest. And you make that point that America's experience with democracy uh, compared to, say, Germany's is... Uh, I mean, it, it, it's... Uh, well, it's incomparable. Yeah, it's, it, it, but no fascism takes, you know, South American fascism is very different to European mm. fascism, and within European fascism there were great differences. It doesn't really matter, I suppose, whether you use the label or not, but it seemed to me unwise to avoid it, and no, there was no reason why one shouldn't avoid it. I mean, even, you know, you can say, well, there are not going to be any stormtroopers in the streets. There aren't going to be thugs beating up anymore. Well, there aren't enough people in the streets to do that anymore. Most of the country's mauled, after all. Um, you don't need people in the streets, but you can use them on the internet. So you can have stormtroopers trolling people, and they have. They've got millions of them. The, the, the thuggery is on the net, basically. And in the, and in the more conventional media and cable news. You know, watch Fox News. It's like being beaten around the head. And Fox is now... Um, it's full on Trump, you know. We now know Rupert speaks to him every week. Um, the two boys just tag along behind, saying it'll be better when Rupert's dead, and Rupert may well live as we you know his mother did for another 20 years, maybe more given what he's taking. <laughs> but I mean, then Aaron Hannity won out, Hannity has beaten, you know, he's beaten off Megan Kelly, uh, Bill O'Reilly's gone, but you know, they'll have someone um, just as um, lovely, I'm sure. It's 96 days into a 1,000... Well, 1,364 more to go for the first term. How's, how's he done so far? Well, it hasn't been a complete flop. You can now... Um, you can hunt bears while they're hibernating in Alaska. Anybody looking for a good rug? Get over there now while the window's open. Um... It doesn't seem like a terribly brave thing to do, to shoot a bear while it's asleep, but there you go. Um, there have been, I mean, it, these are the sorts of things which probably are more um, destructive than some of the big-ticket items of Trump. For instance, you can now pollute a stream more easily because... I mean, in other words, he's relaxed a whole, relaxed a whole lot of environmental controls. He's given back to the state's powers that that the feds had taken from them. So that's why in Alaska you can shoot hibernating bears. You can buy a gun now more easily with a you mental can be illness. Mentally, you can be, have a mental, a mental illness and buy a gun. You can... Um, all those sorts of things. On the, other, on the big ones, the wall, for instance, it looks like um, 
that's not going to get up for a while and probably will never because it'll be stopped in the courts. This is the encouraging part that really the... Um, so far, the Constitution, to speak about it broadly, has stopped him doing some of the things which are perhaps to most liberal-minded people the most objectionable, like the wall, like uh, keeping everybody from six designated countries out of the country. The courts have stopped that. But it has led some Republicans to query whether Hawaii is really a state, seeing it's the... Um, um, on the, and, and, but confronted, I mean, this is the more... And I think there's, what's also encouraging is I think a lot of local governments, a lot of um, cities, police forces and others have refused to implement his, his effort to round up all illegals and the rest. I mean, that's bracing. I don't know whether it would happen in other countries. So, so in one sense, there's a, there is a terrific pushback from the American population in, in certain quarters. But then when all else fails, um, fire off a few rockets. You know, it's actually in the song. Do you know how every time that America goes to war again in the Middle East, the picture is always the same of those rockets going off near. And it's actually in the first verse of the Star Spangled Banner, you know, the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air. Um, you know, Gave, gave proof through the night that um, the flag was still there. And I mean, Americans see this picture repeated over and over again and think, ah, the flag's still there, everything's okay. We're at war again. So something, I mean, this is something which has happened progressively and Obama is as guilty as anybody else, that the war, America's now permanently at war on the frontiers. And rather like, I imagine, ancient Rome, most of the populace in the home, at home, don't even know what's going on until a few weary legionnaires come in half mad with PTSD or something. So that, that you know, the kind of brinkmanship with North Korea dropping the Moab bomb, these things, I, I don't know. I don't know how, how frightened we're meant to be. No, I, I was just thinking that and remembering that as you were talking, that uh, we get numbed very quickly, don't we, to um, anything, I suppose, now. You, you, you hear so much, see so much, such a blur. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I've had a, a bit of a sense lately that he is, perhaps because of the learning curve, perhaps because things have been thwarted, uh, but I imagine more, more than anything just the sheer load of work and responsibility that's being... Uh, thrown at him, uh, that he has pulled back somewhat uh, with the with the weight of it, and there's a slightly more traditional course going on. Yes, well, it's hard to t tell whether he's being pulled into you know the deep state that he so abhorred in the election, or whether you know this is just a temporary game. And he's, but somehow he's got a. I mean, his balancing act is to sort of try and be the president that he promised to his electorate. That it was hard for anybody, but it's particularly hard for him because everything pushes against it. And he must know that he's really got this, this is the crucial couple of years because he's got the Congress and he's got them utterly queers and he's got them at his mercy. Uh, somebody said recently that, you know, that's probably the first time since about the 1840s and I think it was President Tyler. This is my history is very squeaky, but it, the, the, the Trump could actually sack the Congress, not the other way around. I mean, he could go independent. He could say, well, I'm bugger the lot of you. They're also desperate to play. They know that this is their moment too. And um, he and he has these tremendous kingly powers, which are now being advertised all over the US. So he can have his son-in-law and his daughter by his side wherever he goes because he has the power of pardon. So if, if, if it seems they have conflicts of interest, he'll just simply pardon them, if he wants to. That's how far he can take it. I mean, it's, it is a, a very different system. And the president really has a, a stack of powers that are unimaginable in this country, deriving mainly from the fact that he can't be sacked by the, you know, in a matter of minutes by a parliament. 
but he, none of them want to sack him, and no Republican does because you know, they wouldn't be game. There's their um, their their positions depend on him, but whether he he can get through if if he can't deliver on the things that he promised them, the big ones, he's going to look a bit like an emperor with no clothes. Um, um, and I don't know quite how he's going to pull them off. But on the other hand, he's, he has tremendous um, power at the moment. He has the press. He's, he's basically... He I owns mean, the press, doesn't he? How has he done that? A, by earning them an incredible amount of revenue which no one seemed to notice during the campaign, just how much revenue he pulled in in the primary. So they were never going to really sack him. It's funny how people think that, you know, that Rush Limbaugh and O'Reilly and these people are just, you know, good, honest citizens who are just getting up there speaking their opinions. Not that they earn half a billion dollars a year for the station. Um, and the more outrageous they are, the, uh, they are, the more they're going to earn. Um, and, and Trump earned them... No, he, he completely blindsided the press. I mean, he, he turned it upside down and showed them that he ruled the press. And he has such tremendous power through social media now, and he has he has Breitbart sort of working for him, and we think, well, they're just a sort of fringe player, but they're not. They're, he, he uses his Twitter account to direct people to where he wants them to go. Um, he has God knows how many million followers. But these people in the Midwest that you spent time with outside of... Uh, liberal Wisconsin. Are they on social media? Well, you wouldn't think so driving through the place. Um, they're just sleepy old dairy farms, you know, you think. The cows mainly milked by Mexicans, which I found sort of curious. I don't know where they were hiding with the cows because you never see a cow outside. But that's, there, there might be a dairy, a dairy crisis then. I was reading today Ronald Reagan's first act in the first 100 days, and it was the day after he was shot was a, a dairy, uh, as I said, a dairy law. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, so we don't want a milk crisis. <laughs> no. Well, I, 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 think, I think the thing with, you know, with the, the sort of people who, who you know, those sorts of centre-right Republicans who voted for him, I'm sure through gritted teeth, and, and, and really because I think they wanted another Reagan, that maybe this will sort of deliver America out of its, out of its malaise, um, as they saw it. It was a malaise there, not a malaise in other parts of the US. Um, I think they also felt that Hillary was just anathema. And I think, you know, the, the, the great kind of central error of that election was liberal America underestimating how deep the loathing ran and how much, even if it wasn't loathing, the feeling, well, it's just more of the same if, if she gets in and America needs something to kick it along again. The malaise that you write about, um, which includes a description of a hotel that you had to stay at at the end that is just, it almost made me want to cry um, you know, where you, you ask, you know, who could design this? It's just the emptiness. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, in talking about the malaise, this is something that no politician could fix. I, I, that's my reading of what you're saying, that this is something within Americans that they're seeking a leader to somehow reach in and put right that, that politics is not able to do. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think America is 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 really held together by a, 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 some pretty thin threads, and and generally it's war that's pulled it together, or occasionally one or two, you know, on occasion, great leaders um, who've just fallen into place in the nick of time. But the, but the the central divide that that that, that thing between well, to be George Mosse about it, Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, I mean, between community and society or, 
or the sort of intellectual construct and the and the organic visceral construct has really always been there. And what what I think Trump and Bannon and all the mob around him did was fuse the two to bring those two great, you know, the. It's in interesting that in a way that his opponent in that election was a woman who comes out of that communitarian, Protestant communitarian sort of background. And had she stuck to that, I think she would have won. Had she remained the, the sort of the good Methodist talking to small groups of people in town halls across the country in her lower register, where she's utterly compelling, then I think she might have won. But remember this, that for a great, for millions and millions of Americans had already, long before the election, had been persuaded on various media that the Clintons were murderers, that they ran drug rings out of MENA, Arkansas, they, drank, they, they ran a drug cartel, that they were utterly corrupt and vile human beings. Now, a little bit corrupt and moderately vile, you know, we might think them in certain ways. But this is bizarre. So when Clinton, when Trump was saying "crooked Hillary" and "I'm going to put you in jail" and all these if you, fascist sorts of things, is what happens in South American dictatorships. Um, we think, well, what's that going to stick onto? Well, it was going to stick onto people's minds who'd already been preconditioned to thinking that they were of this kind. We had Roger Cohen here early last year from the New York Times, um, not talking specifically about the election year, uh, but he did talk about the crooked Hillary uh, line and was deeply concerned. Uh, and this was mm. way back before I think anyone else was, was picking it up. Um, who is, is there anyone around him advising him appointments people he's consulting that you do admire uh, or you, you know, you're at least pleased that they're there? No. <laughs> um, there's no one there that I could think of as... I mean, I don't, I've, you know, I'd never heard of... Like, I, I suspect most people hadn't heard of Rex Tillerson or some of these characters. Um, someone I know told me that they, the bank he works for it, employed Nushkin, if that's how you pronounce his name, who's now Secretary of the Treasury, I think, and said he was a dead loss, just incompetent, so I don't know how he gets in there. But, um, Is but he the Hollywood film producer? I think he briefly. The other thing, by the way, the other, the other story that Breitbart sp spread, not to a few million people, but to tens of millions of people, was that Hillary had a terminal disease. She was dying. So when she stumbled that day, of course, again, that sort of fed into the into the, the story. Um, no, I can't. I don't, I don't know. I mean, people seem to think Tillerson's all right because so far he hasn't made any particular blunder. Uh, um, that's presuming that he knew that the aircraft carrier was actually off the coast of Australia when it was meant to be sailing to North Korea. <laughs> Um, I, I, he may not have made any blunders so far, but it's hard to say what he's actually done that's been so outstanding. Um, so I think what, he's, what the appointments suggest is that Trump is establishing a kind of kleptocracy like Putin's and various others around the place in, in smaller countries than... Russia and the US. A sort of mafia state, maybe. Um, an oligarchy. There's no... I mean, what, what I think is really worrying is how quickly the press in America and the Murdoch press here leapt to say, ah, he's become a president the moment he fired those missiles. It's OK. It's all right. It's all right. It's just America being America. It's all right. No difference. So you forgive all these things of which he is horrendously guilty. The fact that he has just exercised nothing but nepotism and sort of kleptocratic tendencies since he got the gig. And he is there to enrich himself. 
someone put it really well, the, the modern oligarchy, the Putinesque sort of oligarchy or the Hungarian one or what may become the Polish one or whatever, is one where it's not the power to persecute the innocent but the power to protect the guilty, which really matters. And I think that's what we're likely to see emerging. And you would think now, in your more depressed mornings, that the only, you know, that somehow we're meant to believe that Alec Baldwin is going to save us from this. <laughs> you know, that satire will mm. bring it all down. Mm. Um, or Zuckerberg. Or Zuckerberg. Whereas the main hope is, is actually the, um, the, the, the populace pushing back in some way. Which is Barack Obama's thrust, obviously. That's what he believes. Yeah. Well, I hope he's going to give that 400000 he's getting for the speech to Wall Street to the movement. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the patterns that, that Trump is playing out now were started under, well, I'll go way back, but Barack Obama prosecuted a kind of elegant war in the Middle East. Um, but he did boost the budget to $600 billion and and the national security state didn't get any smaller. And if you add it all together, it's well over a trillion dollars. And, and um, let Wall Street off the hook after the global financial And he did. He may have had, crisis. you know, it would be interesting to read his autobiography for that reason, see what his reasons were. I'm sure it was um, well calculated, but I bet he wishes he'd done something else. Which of uh, Trump's policies that he's pursuing would you expect to stick if he gets them through? I mean, it, it, we're watching now him trying to undo Obama's uh, work and it's it's obviously harder than he thought, some of it. Not everything can be signed away with the executive pen. Uh, what? How, how will Trump change America? Well, I, I don't think we know how far it's going to go, but I think it's already changed, and it, it may not be possible to ever get it back the way it was. Um, I, I, I think it has. I mean, it's the things that will stick. Um, well, it won't be the wall. It might be Roe v. Wade, for instance. That will likely go. Um, Citizens, Citizens United will stay. Um, Look, I, I, I think the main hope for for a while after the election was that the, the sort of everyone from the centre right to the Sanders left would come together to sort of actually find a, a, a liberal alternative to Trumpism. But so long as there's no there is no answer to the social effects of neoliberalism and globalisation, and there is no answer, no one can come up with anything, then it's very hard, for, I think it's very hard for any political movement to make ground without a convincing economic narrative, an alternative economic narrative. And I think that's what Clinton really lacked. In the end, she picked up Sanders' solutions, which were very like Trump's um, on paper, um, reluctantly, because she's at heart a deep neoliberal, because nothing else occurs to her. And I, you know, getting, you know, dropping NAFTA or rewriting NAFTA and dropping the TPP and these things, they are, we don't know what the effect of those would be. They're not, they weren't entirely persuasive. I mean, I would have loved Bernie Sanders to get the, the Democratic nomination, and I think he would have won. But I don't know where we'd be going now. There's one more, uh, the other really scary alternative to Trump winning was that it was Hillary winning by the narrowest margin, by a few hundred thousand votes. You know that would have left America in a crisis, probably as great as the one they've got now. Because no one would have accepted the legitimacy of it from the Trump side. She would be a lame duck from day one, and probably have to revert to the same sort of. Um, chest-thumping militarism that Trump's resorting to. 
When I was reading this old Obama edition, I uh, got to the end of your essay and I turned the page and there was a, the next essay was Gideon Haig's uh, essay on the economy. And it was really interesting also in relation to today that he was making an argument uh, that, you know, the biggest sort of problem we have economically is that we just keep telling everybody forever everything's going to be all right and everything's going to be better than it was. Um, and uh, I've, you know, read such a das too on on this sort of bigger narrative of just an economic lie um, that everybody is telling um, it here, everywhere. Mm. And uh, I wonder what you make of that. About, of the economic lie? Yeah. Well, I think, that, I, mean, I think what was attractive about the, the democratic convention in a way was that these, that it, forced the Democrats at some point to sort of try and at least find the truth. And it was really the looking for the truth rather than finding it. Um, it I'm not sure that, that that radical democratic platform that Clinton ran on, I mean, it had two problems. One is that no one really believed that Hillary was going to, had had a Damascene conversion, was actually going to run with it once she was in. But the other one was that no one was entirely sure that she could go back to massive public works programs and doing the sorts of Keynesian things um, that we'd done before. And whether um, that was going to sit neatly with the main hope in America, which is the, um, the sort of Silicon Valley entrepreneurial stuff. But nevertheless, I think, I mean, there, there's no alternative now but to go back to some kind of, to find something in a mixed economy that's going to, um, I, I don't know what you find. I mean, I don't know how it's going to work, but it seems pointless to go on beating the neoliberal drum. Um, it doesn't work. It had, it had horrendous effects in various ways. Among them, poisoning politics and leaving us with a bunch of Goldman Sachs hacks um, running the world. Mm. It's it clearly revealed have been you know, about as you know deep as your average foot bath. I mean, it's hopeless. So, I don't know. I think the, nec the next person who can come up with a decent economic argument against globalisation mm. and neoliberalism is really off to a flying start. And Trump, in a way, is the last gasp of something else. And the stuff about truth is, I mean, this is, the ne this is where, if you want to, you know, I'm going back to it again, if you want to go back to the sort of connection between Trump and, and fascist precedents, it's his relationship with the truth. That, you know, Trump wants dominion over the truth. He wants, he wants to make his own. And this gives him the greatest delight to make his own truth. And as fascists knew, this is something that people will buy. Mm. You know, it doesn't... Oh, you're wrong. It doesn't matter. I'll be right tomorrow. I mean, that's the other... I mean, the, the business about Trump and the media was that he used the media every... He, he realised it wasn't what you said. It was being there all the time. Over and over and over again. That's what got you there. Um, and I don't, I don't know how the media is ever going to go back to being a serious media. Someone here will know more about it, but what we took, our generation at least, took to be a serious media is no longer... The case you can read any amount of articles every day and feel less informed than you did when you read The Age in a broadsheet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we probably spend about three hours a day surf sifting through internet articles, and at the end of it, you feel like you don't know anything. I've, I've anyway. stopped doing it. I just can't. I can't bear it. No. Mm. Um, we're going to take audience questions in a moment, so um, put your hand up, and uh, if an usher comes your way, start talking, and while you come up the front, I'll just get your thoughts, Don, on um, our dear leader, Malcolm Turnbull, is having a date night, it seems, with Donald Trump next week on a boat, yeah. which I, I just, I, it just blows my mind, the imagery of the whole thing, given 
what boats have done to our politics here and whether, in fact, this is just a very big trap he's setting for Malcolm Turnbull in some uh, payback for what happened uh, during the phone call. But how do you think that'll go? I've got a feeling that it'll be a bit of a damp squib. <laughs> um, Malcolm will do his cheesy grin, which looks more and more like Tony's rictus one. Uh, he doesn't look good in military outfits. Very few of them do. Mm. Um, it's just so, I mean, it's so depressingly predictable. You'd think, no, we, someone in the office must be saying, no, we can't do that again. We can't go off to Afghanistan on Anzac Day and stand there and you wear your puffed up military gear. And after George Bush did his mission accomplished thing, that should have been out, you know, a bad idea. And you can see that, you know, oh no, well it's Anzac Day and we've got to make these connections and the poor buggers are over there. But there has to be some other kind of um, choreography for all this. And now to turn up on a boat, which was predicted about two months ago, this, mm. this boat visit after the phone call. This was the way it was going to be healed. Um, I don't know. I'm, I, I can't believe that Turnbull has turned out to be such a sycophant. <laughs> you know, with Netanyahu, that cozying up to him, calling him Bibi all the time, as if he's his oldest friend. I don't, I don't... Well, we just got him wrong. You know, we thought his loquacity was his intellectual depth and imagination. We thought his ambition was his, you know, was gravel in his guts, and it's neither. Um, Goldman Sachs. I wondered if you thought there was any prospect of Donald Trump being impeached. Well, I don't know. It seems to be one of many prospects. But I think it's... Un I, I, it, Maybe in a second term, but no one wants to think that he's going to get a second term. But chances are he will. Mm. Um, I think. I think the main hope is his health, <laughs> well, the lack of it. He doesn't look well to me. But then, and he has said it's a much bigger job than he imagined. You know, some of these departments, he said, you know, they're bigger than big companies. Yeah, bloody, yeah, big, it's a big job this, I hadn't realised. They're, they're the guys that always live to 100, Don. Hmm? Look at Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. he probably will. Yeah, I know, they've got, they have things they take. But it's, um, <laughs> I think the problem with impeachment is that there was a very good short article by George Packer about six or eight weeks ago in which he said, you know, you can hope for the Constitution to prevail, but for the Constitution to prevail, you know, the institutions of American life need to work. So you need a democratic party which is credible and, and not divided and knows what it needs to do. And you need a Congress which isn't as um, horribly populated by Tea Partiers and people who are dependent on Trump's um, good grace to stay there. So you need, you need a real motive. And we've seen what someone like Paul Ryan, who you remember Ryan got on his high horse when Trump... It was the, the film came out of Trump talking to that creep about goosing women. He, um, Ryan said he wouldn't support him anymore. His popularity fell 30-odd points immediately. So, Trump, so now, Ryan says, asked questions about Trump's improprieties, like not releasing his tax return. Said, not, none, none of my business, he says. I'm here to you know, do other things. I'm not here to make these judgments. It's up to Mr Trump. So they're all spineless um, in this. So I don't, I mean, he could be impeached on a million things, you would think. Um, but I don't see how it's going to happen in the next couple of years. Hi there. I'm just down here somewhere. Hello. Um, with just the new choreography you talk about, sending out a tweet that says if anybody can resolve the Middle Eastern crisis and bring about peace, it's Jared Kushner and sending him over in a flak jacket. I mean, it's so surreal. What's it, what's it actually designed to achieve in, in Trump's mind? And, and what do you think about that as just a general bellwether of his behaviour? Well, I think you've answered your own question. I mean, I think, it's, uh, I think it um, is an indication... I mean, it is a bellwether of his 
of Trump's mindset and the fact that he it is so blatant to have your son-in-law and your daughter there with you in meetings with various heads of state including the Japanese one and so on it, it is saying I dare you to tell me I've got a conflict of interest um, or saying that Jared Kushner is you know, the man to bring about peace in the Middle East well I suppose after 30 years of fruitless battle Jared Kushner's got as good a chance as anybody else but it's sort of hard to believe. I don't know, what, I don't know whether any of you... Uh, I, I watched briefly last night Lateline where they were interviewing the Deputy Secretary of Defence, I think, the Syrian Secretary of Defence. And I thought, later, you know, it's a terrible thing when you, can, you find him more credible than anything that Washington throws up these days. You know, that you find him more credible talking about sarin gas and how the Syrians didn't do it. Not for a moment do you believe him, but he actually presents a more plausible case than these inveterate liars do from Trump and, and, and those surrounding him. That sort of seems to me a pretty parlous state. And But very quickly we accept Jared Kushner. I mean, he, tweet, he tweets this, that Jared's the guy. His supporters accept, yep. Jared's the man, and um, well, he's the press don't say, this is impossible. You can't have this man going and representing the interests of the United States. His clash with Bannon might so far have been the, the sort of most important influence of the people around Trump. Yeah, well, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Bannon was essential to getting him there. But the, the, interesting thing, the interesting thing would be to see whether Bannon becomes a threat to him outside. But for that to happen, Bannon would need to find some, I think, some alternative to Trump. And, you know, Bannon is a kind of real, you know, he calls himself a Leninist. He's a sort of right-wing Leninist. He, he wants to bring the place down. I mean, he's said that and Trump's the man to do it. So what he's thinking now when he has to take a back seat in National Security Council meetings we don't know, but he's, he won't go away easily, I wouldn't think. Um, you know, if Jared Kushner can sort out all that with Bannon and Trump, maybe he is the guy for the Middle East. Well, that may be right. I don't know. I mean, or maybe Ivanka is going to do it. But you can be sure if she goes there, there will be a commercial interest as well. Mm. This is the thing. They, are, they have all, the people surrounding Trump, the military characters aside, and Tillerson, well, Tillerson's among them, are already enriching themselves greatly. The, you know, you ask about impeachment, I mean, the, but there is this thing called the emoluments clause, isn't there? That's right. But that can be circumvented as well. So there's, there's really nothing in the... And unless you have people willing to persist in the way they persisted with Nixon... Um, you're not, it's not going to happen. I mean, I, I think the average punter now, looking at the transcripts of all the proceedings of the Nixon impeachment, you know, the, the 60 or 80 volumes or whatever it is, I saw it once, just physically, never opened it. They said, oh, no, that's too hard. You know, and imagine doing that with Trump. How would you track him down? Because he has all the means to get around it, including, you know, the most important one, which is he's got the democratic voice. Hi, Don. Um, not to re-litigate the democratic primary, but um, there's a book published last week called Shattered about uh, the insider's perspective on Hillary's campaign. I'm interested as a writer what you think the merit is in those kinds of books uh, and at what point do Democrats need to stop talking about 2016? Yeah, I think it should be left to academics now, 2016. But I mean, I, and I think, yeah, I think that would be very helpful. It's a good question. Um, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure who the main players are going to be, because 
You know, it's interesting that Obama was saying that he's in his recent reappearance that he's going to put all his efforts into developing young people um, to take the place of his generation. If he if he does, they're going to have to be young people with a more radical view because I just don't. I think that Obama also was more of the same. You know, I think I think when when Obama and Clinton were on the same stage, it was a bad look. It was almost as bad as Hillary and Beyonce on the same stage. And I don't even really know who Beyonce is, but she could tell she was a celebrity. And it was like doing that to half of America. Um, look at us. We have it all. And, and the thing is that, that Bannon and the Breitbart mob had already set up a counter-narrative to Hollywood and, and all this sort of stuff. They quite deliberately made these films which spread across the internet to run directly against the Hollywood, liber Hollywood liberalism. So where they are now, I mean, the, the, more of the same is disastrous. So a, a Clinton or Obama-led Democratic Party, I don't think will go anywhere. I mean, it needs a sort of something as radical and dramatic as Sanders was offering or as Trump was offering, I think. Maybe um, might be completely wrong. But after Reagan, for instance, nothing was the same again in America. Reagan forced Clinton on the Democrats, which was a new kind of, you know, that, that was the break with Keynesianism and the New Deal, the Democratic third way, as Thatcher forced Tony Blair on the Labor Party. I can't see that a sort of um, a Clinton-esque or Obama-esque leader of the Democrats is going to make the difference that's, that's needed. So it'll have to be some more radical way. We'd have to hope that it's not an accommodation with Trumpism as Clintonism was an accommodation with Reaganism. Could we have your thoughts, please, on the combination of Trump's propensity to find scapegoats when things go wrong, the comparative lack of uh, constitutional controls over his foreign adventures and the fact that he has his finger on the nuclear button? Yeah, well, I mean, this, this, that was one of the lines the Democrats ran, of course, that he was psychologically unsuited. And she didn't very often mention the nuclear codes that he would be given, but um, that was what was, that was the, the message she was sending. Um, and I think it's still sort of, people still wake in the night, you know, wondering, you know, what he's doing next. I don't know. I mean, I think none of us knows whether we're in greater danger now than we were before. I think the thing that sort of, I mean, if you, if you put it down to simple psychology, you know, if, it, if, it, if, there are no, if there's no check against Trump's obviously um, twisted ego, um, then it's... It is very frightening because you would think the man he calls, and what he has some name for. Yes, now he's got some other that gentleman or something. He would be terribly offensive to Trump, and that, that, that's when you get worried at two o'clock in the morning. You know, you think this character would really drive Trump mad that he can't control him. I mean, that's that's I think what the most worrying thing about his psychology that he really feels the need to control people and to, to bully them and um, and whether that will lead him to do something really rash I don't know but it's just funny thing you, you sort of feel like China is now the sort of uh, the place you know where, where wisdom and gravity resides again Chinese must be feeling terrific about it because they've always said that's the case you know <laughs> Um, it was only these colonial bastards that ruined it for us. Um, but I think he's given already tremendous sort of uh, a huge shift in sort of moral status from the from the United States to China. Um, it's a funny thing, you know. Meanwhile, in Europe, you know, Angela Merkel, you know, the, Germany seems like the most sensible place on earth. But he's already forfeited a lot of, um, I think, of sort of moral gravity. 
but I don't think we know, I don't think we're, we're not necessarily more at risk from him. I don't know. Well, thank you. I actually have a question about what would happen if something did happen to Trump's health or if he got impeached. Do we then get, or do they then get Pence? And would he be more effective in pushing through a traditional Republican agenda, or what would happen? Well, again, I wouldn't, I, we'd get Pence, logically. Or that's what had happened. Yeah, we'd get Pence, and I don't think anyone's got the faintest idea you know, what that would mean. Um, the man is a sort of, you know, highly moral and a dullard, as far as we can tell. Um, well, a dull person might be a better way of putting it. But what that would mean for the whole project, the whole Trump project, is hard to say. You know what, what that would mean for Trump's backers, um, both his sort of financial backers and his um, and his and his propaganda backers, and his electorate. Whether they'd buy a Pence or want another kind of Trump, I don't know. But I, I, I think on balance, it would be a very good result. Um, boring. Uh, we wouldn't be reading the internet as avidly each morning to see whether the world still existed or not, but but we, or what new barbarity he'd committed. But we'd probably be safer. Um, just so we don't end quite on that note, you you write so beautifully about Muhammad Ali in your uh, quarterly essay and uh, um, suggest that, I think you say, we need a million of them. Yeah, well, he died while I was there. and I, I, You I, seemed very, very moved by it. I was. You know, just when you're thinking the worst thoughts about the United States, you come across the best, you know. And he, there, there was this sort of... You're very aware that you weren't hearing any, you know, good old boys speaking so highly of Muhammad Ali. But it, it, it reminds you of what incredible courage Ali had, you know, a phenomenal courage. I mean, the courage to get into a ring with some of those monsters. But also, the, you know, I, was just, I thought, well, you know, when I was a student, Ali was a boxer. And we puddled around with all sorts of theories about what, society ought to look like and Ali just went straight for it I mean you know gave up his title gave up everything was prepared to go to jail um, stared down the might of America just stared it down I thought well, you know, this was extraordinary courage from a you know a kid from the back blocks of Kentucky and then there were these outpourings from other American boxers, from George Foreman, for instance, you know, he said, look, he wasn't the greatest boxer there ever was. I had a better punch than him, um, all those things. But he was the greatest man I ever knew for all sorts of reasons. I mean, you know, basically George and between George and Frazier, they gave him Parkinson's. They destroyed his brain. And Foreman said this really touching thing. He said, I, I think all the time, I know I hit him on the neck in that fight. I hit him on the back of the neck and I keep thinking, is that what did it to him? And, you know, it was, it was tremendously moving in this sort of horrendous political debate that was going on, this sort of horrible, lying, bullshitting savagery. There was something really touching about the, the um, Ali death and uh, the testimonials to him, which, of course, then had to be held in the Kentucky Fried Chicken Chapel um, as it was called constantly in, um, in his hometown. So they never forget the advertising. But, um, it, was a, it was a tremendous thing. And he seemed, Ali seemed like, you know, a sort of moral standard. I mean, he was not the most moral man, but he had, um, he had a sort of integrity and a courage which 
in this world of fear that Americans in the Midwest inhabit um, was something to behold. I mean, you get in the car and, and there is someone on there saying, the God of Islam is a God of destruction. They hate Christians. They're coming to get you. And they're just hammering away this all the time. Never stop. And no one listens to that radio in Brooklyn. Um, but out there, they listen all the time. And they do live in fear. In fact, the more remote the place, the greater the fear that they're going to be blown up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that ISIS is going to go for them in Whistlestop, Ohio. They're not going to go for New York or anything like that. They're going to, they're going to go for this railway siding, you know, with one house by it. Oh, that, that boat. That boat, that boat, yeah. I love America. I really, really do. I love you. Uh, we're going to leave it alone now, this topic, for, you know, until we've got some very special reason to go back to America in the coming months. Uh, Don, uh, you have satisfied, for the time being, very beautifully tonight, my need to hear something different and deeper. And I'm sure everybody here shares that sentiment so thank you so much and thank you as well for joining us we'll be back soon with a look over australia's federal budget announcements alongside one of the country's most respected political reporters kerry o'brien until then you'll find thousands more fascinating ideas in the form of podcasts videos articles and of course live events at wheelercenter.com the fifth estate is hosted by sally warhaft and our series producer is Gemma rayner Thanks for listening and take care.